Dr. Robert Anderson, writing in the Edinburgh Magazine, October 1786, asked, Who are you, Mr. Burns? Will some surly critic say, at what university have you been educated? What languages do you understand? What authors have you particularly studied? Who has praised your poems, and under whose patronage are they published? In short, what qualifications entitle you to instruct or entertain us? To the questions of such a catechism, perhaps honest Robert Burns would make no satisfactory answer. My good sir, he might say, I am a poor countryman. I was bred up at the school of Kilmarnock, I understand no languages but my own. My poems have been praised at many a fireside, and I ask no patronage for them if they deserve none. The author is indeed a striking example of native genius, bursting through the obscurity of poverty and the obstructions of laborious life. And when we consider him in this light, we cannot help regretting that wayward fate has not placed him in a more favoured situation. Two months later, Burns found himself in the more favoured situation of Edinburgh, where his champions were waiting to both celebrate and cultivate his native genius. In today's poem, Burns tries to repay the kindness of his supporters with a tribute that lays bare the double-edged nature of his celebrity in Edinburgh. Part literary superstar, part, as he puts it himself, the learned pig in the grass market. Hello and welcome to Ear Read This, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast. Today, to celebrate Burns Night 2024, I'll be talking about the poem Address to Edinburgh by Robert Burns. This is my fourth annual Burns Night episode, and it is, as tradition dictates, a few days late. Uh, the previous three have all, in one way or another, focused and advertised the Scottishness of Burns, as we looked at poems that were written in Scots dialect and based on scraps of rural Scottish folk stories and songs. By contrast, today's poem is Burns at his most anglicised, a poem without Scots language, using an Augustan verse form fashionable amongst the English poets of his day. In his Address to Edinburgh, Burns throws on a neoclassical air to match those favoured by his subject city. Edinburgh was entering her golden age in 1786 when Burns wrote this address, so decades before it decided to build its own Parthenon, but already cultural thinkers like Alan Ramsay had begun to imagine Edinburgh as a kind of British Athens. In the words of historian Mary Koch, Edinburgh, though still in a state of creation, was at last graduating into modernity. So the good news is that thanks to the poem's English pretensions, I won't be attempting the Scots accent I usually do for these Burns Night episodes. The bad news is that due in no small part to those same English pretensions, this poem has had quite a hard time of it with the critics. Burns biographer Ian McIntyre calls the poem lumbering and not one of his best efforts. Nigel Leask has called it one of his weakest performances. Robert Crawford, another Burns biographer, calls it unthinkingly highfalutin, a piece in which Burns is trying his hardest to be bardic about the nation's capital, while Michael Fry calls it the contrived pian of an awestruck country bumpkin. That's the um, forlorn note you tend to encounter when you start reading up on this poem. Burns fans and scholars disappointed at the sight of the poet's cowed and curtsying, performing an act of obligation. David Deitches and James Buchan respectively call it a duty poem and a bread and butter poem. And I can't say I disagree with any of them, um, so you might be wondering why I talk about this poem when there are plenty of famous and great Burns poems out there that I haven't talked about yet. 
Well, firstly, this is, as I mentioned, Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast, so it is my sort of civic duty to receive and scrutinise Burns's address. Secondly, as the national poet, it's bound to be revealing what Burns says or doesn't say about the nation's capital. Add to that the biographical details the poem provides, sketches of places and people that Burns knew in his time in Edinburgh. We also have references to Burns's family history, and the poem serves as an example of how Burns chose to portray himself to strangers in a new environment. He was smart enough to know the Arcadian appeal a ploughman poet would have for potential enlightened subscribers. And so in the preface to the first edition of his poems, Burns played up his bumpkinry, saying he was unacquainted with the necessary requisites for commencing poet by rule, he sings the sentiments and manners he felt and saw in himself and his rustic compeers around him, in his and their native language. This was hardly true. Burns was in fact well-read and educated, but nevertheless the gambit worked, and soon enough Burns found himself the toast of Edinburgh, where, as Trevor Royal says, he was well aware that in dealing with the upper classes he was not only walking a social tightrope, but also in danger of becoming, in his own words, the learned pig in the grass market. Finally, Burns doesn't only address the Edinburgh he found in 1786, but the Edinburgh of years gone by, where once beneath a monarch's feet sat legislation's sovereign powers. In other words, before the union of the Scottish and English crowns, when James VI of Scotland became James I of England in 1603, and before the subsequent Acts of Union in 1707, officially combining not only the two crowns, but the two parliaments of England and Scotland. Alas, how changed the times to come, Burns laments in his address. Andrew Noble and Patrick Scott Hogg, in their magnificent Canongate Burns, comment, Apparently a slight act of obeisance to Edinburgh, the poem actually obscures darker anxieties about the true state of the Scottish body politic. So without further ado, let's read through the poem. It's eights all the way down for this one. Eight stanzas of eight lines of eight syllables, less syllables than you usually find in Ottava Rima, but still iambic. The Augustan verse form was fashionable in English poetry. Commonly, the rhyme scheme alternated line by line before finishing in a rhyming couplet. Uh, but Burns uh, instead has a rhyming couplet in the middle, which affects a transition between the A and the C rhymes. So it goes A, B, A, B, B, C, B, C, B. You'll hear it as I go. I'll read through each stanza and then pause to comment uh, before moving on to the next. So here is the first one. Edina, Scotia's darling seat, all hail thy palaces and towers, where once beneath a monarch's feet sat legislation's sovereign powers. From marking wildly scattered flowers, as on the banks of air I strayed, and singing lone the lingering hours, I shelter in thy honoured shade. So you can hear in the middle there how the B rhymes hand over from A to C. Seat, towers, feet, powers, flowers, strayed, hours, shade. And that's towers and flowers, by the way, not towers and flowers. Burns drops syllables throughout the poem to maintain that eight beats per line. Morris Lindsay, in his Burns Encyclopedia, says that the poetic name for Edinburgh, Edina, was first used by the Latin poet and tutor to Mary Queen of Scots, George Buchanan. Buchanan is a hugely influential figure in Scottish literature and history. He not only tutored Mary, but her son, King James. Buchanan's dialogue on the rights of the Scottish kingdom made the case for the limitations of a monarch, who, in Buchanan's analysis, is subject to the laws of the land, and since the people are the parents of the law, the king is subject to the people. This was dangerous enough stuff for Buchanan's former student, King James, to later suppress his uh, tutor's writings. 
Burns's address to Buchanan's home city observes how the times have changed, the royal name of Scotland's kings low in the dust. Since Buchanan's day, the Scottish Stuart line had suffered violent depositions and finally total displacement, with the British crown passing to the House of Hanover in 1714. Adina, Scotia's darling seat. It's a flowery-sounding appellation. You can tell why it has elicited uh, nose wrinkles from critics. This is Burns at his most uncharacteristically effete. As Robert Crawford has said, one of Burns's Mocklin cronies might have joked that Scotia's darling seat meant the arse of Scotland. And in fact, the most notorious response to the poem comes courtesy of an Edinburgh plumbing company that named a new toilet seat Adina, demonstrating, in David Deitch's words, if somewhat crudely, a real critical insight. After hailing the city and observing its lack of a monarch, Burns introduces himself into the poem. From marking wildly scattered flowers, as on the banks of air I strayed, and singing lone the lingering hours, I shelter in thy honoured shade. So here you can get a taste of Burns's affected bumpkinry, presenting himself singing away in pastoral oblivion, marking scattered flowers for want of anything better to do. His portrait of himself recalls Milton's portrait of Shakespeare in rural Stratford, Fancy's child warbling his native wood notes wild. Burns's youth in Alloway and Tarbolton was nothing like as idle and thoughtless as he presents it here and in his preface to his poems. From a young age, Burns worked as a farm labourer for his father, William, who also provided Robert with an education, a slightly eccentric education perhaps, comprising of homeschooling, private tuition and traditional classes, but Burns read widely of both English poets including Milton, but also more contemporary Scottish poets like Alan Ramsay and Robert Ferguson. I've just been reading a novelised account of Burns's life by James Bark. It's a quintet of novels, the first of which is called The Wind That Shakes the Barley, and it concentrates on Burns growing up in Ayrshire. Not only does Bark give an account of the poet's education, but also the social culture of song-swapping and tinkering amongst Burns and his peers. He was quite far from an untutored rhymester warbling in splendid isolation. As on the banks of air I strayed, and singing lone the lingering hours I shelter in thy honoured shade. Again, you can hear Burns' critics balking at this. In air I strayed, as if that's not where he's from, but where somewhere he strayed to. And now at last he has returned to the honoured shade of the mother city. Moving on to the second stanza, we get a kind of roll call of Edinburgh's golden age accomplishments. Here wealth still swells the golden tide, as busy trade his labours plies. There architecture's noble pride bids elegance and splendour rise. Here justice from her native skies high wields her balance and her rod. There learning with his eagle eyes seeks science in her coy abode. Little to recommend it, this stanza. Um, let's start with the musical awkwardness. The rhyme scheme is the same as it is throughout the poem, but the A and B sounds are jarringly similar. Tide, plies, those are meant to be two different rhyme sets. Pride, rise, skies. You lose the auditory effect of that middle couplet um, affecting a transition when it all sounds like it might be meant to rhyme. There's a kind of build-up, a jam of I sounds. And then the, uh, the C rhymes, the last two, don't actually land their rhyme either. Rod and abode just gives the whole uncertain, assonant stanza a, a flat finish. And then there's the fact that the content is pure, gratuitous smoke-blowing. The capitals, capitalised achievements, are name-checks like demigods decking out Adina's Olympus. Wealth and trade, architecture and justice, learning with his eagle eyes, science in her coy abode. 
It's more than faintly silly, and some lines are just plain bad, as busy trade his labours plies. If Burns were in a more scatological frame of mind, we might have imagined a double entendre to Edinburgh's swelling golden tide, meaning not just currents of wealth, but buckets of piss that were famously thrown out of old town windows, with, if you were lucky, a warning cry of Gardelou. An American visitor to Edinburgh, Benjamin Rush, described the experience of having household effluvia dumped on your head in the street as being naturalised. Probably best to just hold our noses and push on to the third stanza. Thy sons, Adina, social kind, with open arms the stranger hail, their views enlarged, their liberal mind, above the narrow rural vale, attentive still to sorrow's wail, or modest merit's silent claim, and never may their sources fail, and never envy blot their name. The rhymes are a bit more straightforward this time, but Burns is still blowing smoke up old Reeky, this time complimenting the sons of Edinburgh who have welcomed him. Among these might be included William Creech, the Earl of Glencairn, Dougald Stewart, and Dr Thomas Blacklock. It was in no small part thanks to Blacklock's enthusiastic response to Burns's poems that he came to Edinburgh in the hopes of publishing a second edition. Dougald Stewart was a famous metaphysician uh, and chair of moral philosophy at the University of Edinburgh. Stewart was similarly impressed by the Kilmarnock edition and hosted Burns when he came to the capital. Another distinguished admirer was the Earl of Glencairn, James Cunningham, a man whose generosity led Burns to call him his titular protector, a man to whom I owe more than any man of earth. As for William Creech, he was a publisher who kept a shop on Edinburgh's High Street. Burns's second Edinburgh edition of his poems, adding uh, new pieces, including today's, to those collected in the Kilmarnock edition, was published by Creech. So after the encouragement and welcome Burns had received from the likes of these men, as Catherine Carswell writes, some public acknowledgement on the part of Mr Burns was expected by Edinburgh. The pride that might not stoop to appeal must rise all the more quickly in gratitude. Thus today's poem, which first appeared in the Caledonian Mercury shortly after they had published a much more typical and Burnsian address, his famous Address to a Haggis. Again, nostrils may flare at the reference to the minds of Adina's sons lifted above the narrow rural veil, a line that might be innocently topographical, uh, but conjures a note of snobbery directed towards simple country folk. Attentive still to sorrow's wail or modest merit's silent claim, and never may their sources fail and never envy blot their name. Patrick Scott Hogg and Andrew Noble read these lines as, at the very least, questioning the longevity of his charitable celebration in Edinburgh. And unfortunately, not all of Burns's relationships with Adina's sons remained as cloudless as this stanza optimistically suggests. His association with William Creech was decidedly soured by Creech's miserliness when it came to paying the poet his due. Burns was soon to learn that the Creech arms were not so open and the Creech mind not so liberal as they may have first appeared. He was initially impressed by Creech, saying that of all of the Edinburgh literati, the publisher wrote most like a gentleman. But Creech's stubbornness when it came to settling his account with Burns drove the poet to distraction. Alan Foster, in his book Lover's Guide to Edinburgh, records an anecdote related to John Grierson. Robert Burns was coming up Leith Walk, brandishing a sapling and with much violence in his face and manner. When asked what was the matter, Burns replied, I am going to smash that shite, Creech. With that, let's move on to stanza four and leave Adina's sons for her daughters. 
Thy daughter's bright, thy walks adorn, gay as the gilded summer sky, sweet as the dewy milk-white thorn, dear as the raptured thrill of joy. Fair Burnet strikes the adoring eye, heaven's beauties on my fancy shine. I see the sire of love on high, and own his work indeed divine. Rhymes-wise, it's another pickle. Adorn, sky, thorn, joy, I, shine, high, divine. So joy clashing with sky, and then the same shrill assonance in the second half of this stanza as we saw in the uh, second stanza. I shine high divine. It's somewhat fitting that whenever Burns is soppiest in sentiment in this poem, he is correspondingly cloying with his rhymes. I think the first four lines we can just pass over on the grounds of them being awful. Um, dear is the raptured thrill of joy. Dear is a dear thing. Nice as nice. Yuck. Fair Burnet strikes the dooring eye. Now, in the Edinburgh edition, this is printed as B and then dash, the identity veiled with a dash. This was Eliza Burnett, daughter of the famous Lord Monboddo, herself a sometime poet. In a letter from around this time, Alison Coburn shared Edinburgh's top gossip. The town is at present agog with the ploughman poet, she writes. His favourite in all the gay world is Bess Burnett, no bad judge indeed. On the 17th of December, 1786, Burns sent a copy of Address to Edinburgh to William Chalmers back in Eyre, to which he added a description of Burnett. There has not been anything like her in all the combinations of beauty, grace and goodness the great creator has formed since Milton's Eve on the first day of her existence. A not insignificant portion of the commentary on this poem fixates, rather meanly, on whether or not Eliza Burnett was deserving of all this praise, of being hailed as a second Eve. Ian McIntyre says, long years later, Edinburgh opinion never comfortable with superlatives supplied a corrective to the extravagancies of Burns's assessment. Eliza was recalled to have rotten teeth and thick ankles. In the Canongate Burns, Andrew Noble and Patrick Scott Hogg report that Eliza actually bore a close resemblance to her physically unprepossessing father. Uh, anyone who has seen John Kay's caricatures of Mombodo will know what they mean. Mombodo was another welcoming son of Edina. Burns would have had opportunity to admire Eliza at one of her father's self-consciously Grecian soirees. Morris Lindsay describes them as follows. At his house in St. John Street in the Canongate, Mombodo for many years held learned suppers. These were convened at an early hour, and the cream of the intelligentsia were invited to partake of attic repasts. The table was strewn with roses, the wine flasks similarly garlanded. Heaven's beauties on my fancy shine, I see the sire of love on high, and own his work indeed divine. Burns certainly acted as if he was galvanised by the sire of love during his time in Edinburgh. When he set off from Mosquiel Farm in Mauchlin in 1786, he left behind him a knotty mess of romantic disasters, which he wasted no time replicating once he got to the capital. Eliza Burnett was far from the only daughter of Edina that on his fancy shone. Burns had affairs with servants like Jenny Clough and May Cameron, and Clough's mistress, Agnes McElhose, had the most celebrated affair with Burns, although in all likelihood it was uncharacteristically unconsummated. McElhose inspired Burns's great love song, A Fond Kiss, beyond which their romance is best remembered for the exchange of letters it produced, in which the two adopted the famous pseudonyms Clorinda and Sylvander. Walter Scott described the letters as the most extraordinary mixture of sense and nonsense, of love, human and divine, that was ever exposed to the eye of the world. 
John Buchan has written of Burns and McElhose's letters that they breathe the triumphs and absurdities of the sentimental life as under-contrived pastoral personalities, Sylvander and Clorinda worked one another up to a fine pitch of Arcadian passion. The feminine name with which Burns embodies Edinburgh, Adina, recalls the likes of Eliza and Clorinda, rarefied and celebrated beauties, while occluding the other women he had relationships with here, like Jenny Clow and May Cameron. It's another aspect of the poem that lays bare Burns' writing and living in almost two different social registers. On now to stanza five, in which we see Edinburgh Castle, a natural enough transition, as it was known as the Castle of the Maidens, and for my money, this is the best stanza. There, watching high the least alarms, thy rough, rude fortress gleams afar, like some bold veteran, grey in arms, and marked with many a seamy scar. The ponderous wall and massy bar, grim rising o'er the rugged rock, have oft withstood assailing war, and oft repelled the invader's shock. Easily the most exuberant and most enjoyable stanza to recite, full of alliteration, full of rollick. There's imperfect rhyming again, but the rhymes don't clang like they do in previous stanzas. Bar and war is a softer kind of assonance. They don't jar the ear the same way. Watching high, the least alarms, lovely sense of raptor-like vigilance, the castle obsessively watching the city, obsessively attentive like one of Ted Hughes's hawks. Thy rough, rude fortress gleams afar like some bold veteran grey in arms, and marked with many a seamy scar the ponderous wall and massy bar. I can vouch for Burns here as someone who walks in the honoured shade of Edinburgh Castle at least once a day. He has captured its battered, seamy look. I read seamy not as sordid, but resembling a seam as the, uh, the lines of stitchwork, as if the grey veteran has been patched up multiple times over the years. That bold veteran, grey in arms and marked with many a seamy scar, the ponderous wall and massy bar grim rising o'er the rugged rock. It's simple, but Burns gets to what is essential about the spectacle of Edinburgh Castle. The seams and perpendicular bars of the building's design perched on the sudden, chaotic, crumpled mass of stone, the volcanic plug it sits on. So the ponderous wall and massy bar, grim rising o'er the rugged rock, have oft withstood a sailing war, and oft repelled the invader's shock. Which it certainly has. Nowhere in Britain has been more besieged than Edinburgh Castle. Uh, in the next stanza, Burns moves on from addressing the castle to Holyrood Palace. With awestruck thought and pitying tears, I view that noble stately dome, where Scotia's kings of other years, famed heroes, had their royal home. Alas, how changed the times to come, their royal name low in the dust, their hopeless race wild wandering roam, though rigid law cries out, t'was just. A little more melodramatic as the poet looks upon the palace with awestruck, pitying tears. Formerly the home of Scotland's kings, Holyrood Palace was becoming a memorial, attracting paying visitors to look around the former home of Mary, Queen of Scots, while the grounds around Holyrood became a debtor's sanctuary. In the view of Andrew Noble and Patrick Scott Hogg, the deserted Holyrood Palace symbolises the fall of the Stuarts, in whom Burns found both the public manifestation of a disintegrated Scotland and private expressions of his own sense of life as displaced, if not exiled, grief. So Burns, ostensibly talking about the Stuarts here, their royal name low in the dust, their hopeless race wild wandering Rome, also recalls the image he presents of himself early on in the poem, straying by the banks of air. Uh, 
The wild wanderings of former kings show Scottish royalty fallen to the social level of Burns, which can't help but have the opposite effect on him. If kings are now a hopeless race of exiles, scattered across the plain, well then any wandering exile might harbour royal potential. The rigid law cries out, "'Twas just." His final line shrugs fatalistically at the fall of the Stuarts, that their fall is not treated like a crime. Bonnie Prince Charlie, the young pretender, was now living out his final days in Europe, where he had lived since the failed uh, 1745 uprising. Here, Burns's address, in the words of Hogg and Noble, utterly contradicts Walter Scott's view of Edinburgh, in that it does not present a paradigm of burgeoning Scottish post-Union evolution, but a sense of national loss at the heart of this city, as symbol of the national spirit. On to Burns's penultimate stanza. Wild beats my heart to trace your steps, whose ancestors in days of yore, through hostile ranks and ruined gaps, old Scotia's bloody lion bore. Even I, who sing in rustic lore, haply my sires have left their shed, and faced grim danger's loudest roar, bold following where your fathers led. More grovelling on behalf of the common folk of the country, who left their shed to follow Edina's noble ancestors into battle, carrying the bloody lion, which is the red lion on the Scottish royal banner. Burns's family are thought to have been sympathetic to the Jacobite cause. The poet himself said his grandfather fought in the 1715. For Hogg and Noble, in the Canongate Burns, the essence of Burns's Jacobitism is to be found in this poem. Through hostile ranks and ruined gaps, old Scotia's bloody lion bore. I quite like the doubleness of that line. Bearing the standard that has the lion on it, but also the sense of a bloody lion boring his way through the ruined gaps. Reminds me of Macbeth carving his passage through Norwegians at the start of Shakespeare's play. Even I, who sing in rustic lore, haply my sires have left their shed, and faced grim danger's loudest roar, bold following where your fathers led. Naffly hyphenated construction, bold following. Um, uh, the second use of grim only highlights how much better the first usage was. Grim rising o'er the rugged rock in the last stanza is a much nicer line than grim danger's loudest roar. And again, the deprecating reference to the poet singing in rustic lore, as if, unlike his ancestors, his mind and his language are still in the shed. The Enlightenment's embrace of Burns is in several ways paradoxical. On the one hand, they were totally won over by the idea of a heaven-taught ploughman, a genius in the rough. As James Buchan has written, for the Scottish theorists of the second half of the 18th century, genius was a principle of human nature that could be neither taught nor learned. Pure genius had the power to demolish or suspend social form, and Edinburgh instantly decided that Burns was just such a pure genius. But then, on the other hand, they insisted on correcting and cultivating this supposedly natural genius. This impulse can be clearly read in Henry Mackenzie's famous review of the Kilmarnock edition, published in The Lounger on the 9th of December 1786. Here he is appealing to his readers' sense of cultural duty to reward Burns's unnoticed talent to, quote, repair the wrongs of suffering or neglected merit, to call forth genius from the obscurity in which it had pined indignant, and place it where it may profit or delight the world. With this weird mixture of generosity and extreme condescension, Mackenzie both recognises Burns's gifts whilst characterising his native Ayrshire as completely incapable of doing so, not just incapable of noticing and rewarding Burns's merits, but even of enjoying his work. 
The paradox here is that, in Mackenzie's view, the narrow rural veil has produced a genius only the city can recognise. And even as he lords this uh, bardic bumpkin, he warns against the provincial dialect Burns used, which, Mackenzie says, is now read with a difficulty which greatly damps the pleasure of the reader. Mackenzie went so far as to recommend that the second edition of poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect omit all the poems written in dialect. David Deitch's uh, addressing enlightened Edinburgh's curious combination of pride and shame in its Scottishness wrote, in 1787, the very year that Burns was in Edinburgh being lionised for his poems chiefly in the Scottish dialect, there was published in the city a work by James Beattie entitled Scotticisms Arranged in Alphabetical Order, designed to correct improprieties of speech and writing. Its object was to enable the Scottish literati to rid themselves completely of any Scottish elements in their language and speak with the voice of North Britain rather than Scotland. This would be an exercise in removing the eggs after the cake had cooled, as Michael Fry notes that the Scots dialect and that of Northern Britain already possessed plenty of common ground. The Northumbrian dialect of Old English, writes Fry, was the ancestor of modern Scots. Burns's line in To a Mouse, where he offers the terrified little animal a daemon icker in a thrave, is Northumbrian, meaning the odd ear in 24 sheaves. But on then to the final stanza, which turns out to be a return of the first. Edina, Scotia's darling seat, all hail thy palaces and towers, where once beneath a monarch's feet sat legislation's sovereign powers. From marking wildly scattered flowers, as on the banks of air I strayed, and singing lone the lingering hours, I shelter in thy honoured shade. And so we end once again with the poet literally overshadowed by the city of Edinburgh. This poem, as we have seen, is an exercise in flattery, an effort to display the correction which the likes of Mackenzie hoped Burns might obtain. Thankfully, when it came to his Edinburgh edition, he did not go so far as to turn his back on the dialect poems that he is best remembered for. As Carol McGurk writes, Burns's revisions often reflect his half-hearted efforts to comply with the advice of genteel but poem-deaf mentors. As their advice was invariably to anglicise, it is not surprising that the poet also begins to complain in his letters that he cannot write well in English. Comments often quoted out of context to indicate Burns's discomfort with the language itself, when what they suggest is the poet's distress at being instructed by self-appointed censors. And with that, we come to the end of today's episode. Thank you very much for listening. And if you'd like to hear more from Edinburgh's most powerful book podcast, please consider subscribing either on your chosen platform provider or on YouTube. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>